Hi, I'm Chris Shaffrey, the president of the AANS, and I want to invite you to Boston for our annual meeting, which is going to be held on April 25th through 29th, 2020. The theme of the meeting is the world of neurosurgery. It's going to be an exciting, informative, compelling meeting, and I strongly encourage you all to attend. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. So today's guest is Errol Vez. Errol's a good friend of mine, and we're going to be talking about how to choose the right job. So I wanted to start by introducing Errol because I've known you for a while, but maybe maybe not all of our listeners have heard of you. But I've always been fascinated by your career. I mean, you you obviously are one of the most well-known endovascular neurosurgeons out there. But the fact that you've taken this to a whole new level where you basically organize a succession of ever larger physician groups in cooperation with hospitals and insurance companies. Now I'm hearing about this GNI, the Global Neuroscience Institute. You know, maybe you can talk about that a little bit too. And and you've been treating complex diseases, you know, with stroke and and emergent diseases. And so I know you've intersected with lots of young neurosurgeons, right? And so we want to talk to you about how to choose the right job. But tell us a little about what you're doing right now. So um, what we've, you know, we all started out in academics at some point, right? And we have a six, seven-year residency program, and, and that's kind of our, our entree into neurosurgery. Um, and so I was at Thomas Jefferson uh, for well over a decade. And what we did was we saw the uh, changing times, um, and it was multiple variables. Um, it wasn't just um, academics versus private practice, which I think is a really important thing for um, younger neurosurgeons finishing residence and fellowships to really understand because I think that that kind of dichotomy is is gone. There's a big gray area there. So really what we did was we, we wanted to make things simple and basically bring complex neurosurgery to the hospitals that were reliant on large university hospitals and develop um, kind of programs that could be supportive across a, a, a wide array of systems and specialties. That's great. So So can you Turn back the clock in your mind about two decades. Okay, you're, you're finishing residency, fellowship, and all that, and you're the applicant now, right? And you're looking at all these jobs, and you know, there's a lot of jobs out there, right? What, what is it you're looking for? Like, what are the features of jobs that are, you know, you say, yeah, that's a good job, right? Well, that's a great question, and, and because two decades ago, um, there really wasn't that vast array, right? You, you had two decisions. Am I going to be an academic neurosurgeon or am I going to go into private practice? I mean, it really was that. And I was in a very unique situation as, as some of my colleagues where we were the first batch of endovascular neurosurgeons to come out. We were, I would say, the second generation after mm-hmm. um, you know, Robert Rosenwasser, Nick Hopkins, um, who were the you know, first two guys really in neurosurgery to take on endovascular. We weren't accepted by neurosurgeons, we weren't accepted by radiologists, we weren't accepted by, um, you know, we were kind of in a crosshairs there. 
So to do endovascular and even complex vascular neurosurgery or any vascular neurosurgery, you, you had to be in an academic institution. So it's very, very different. Today, I think it's a lot tougher for these kids to decide what kind of job they want because it's not just about academics versus private practice. It's about what can I do, how can I do it, um, and you know, having independence versus being part of advancing uh, neurosurgery um, and being part of an academic mission. It's very confusing. Yeah, and, and one of my favorite things to do with, with residents is, like, if I'm visiting a place, is I'll do a little role play with them because they've never done this, and I'll pretend to be the hospital CEO or medical director right. or, you know, of the group, and they'll be the applicant. I'm like, let's have a little conversation, and it totally throws them, right, because no job is going to advertise its negative features, right? They're telling the positive features, so what should people look for? Right. So I, I think really what it comes down to is before they start looking, they have to look in the mirror. They've got to decide what it is they want to do. And that's a really tough thing to do because you can say, well, gee, I'm really interested in, in being part of academic neurosurgery. I want to write papers. I want to be part of trials. I, I want to do some cutting edge stuff. But by the same token, I, I want to kind of do more uh, uh, diverse, have more diverse practice. I want to have a little bit more independence. Um, so I think you have to decide what's important to you. And to your point, you really have to vet out these places that you're going. And I, I, what I find are people aren't asking the right questions. Uh, when I'm interviewing somebody, I'll ask some very similar questions um, and to really make sure that it's a fit. And that's really what it comes down to. Uh, like give me an example. Give me an example of a question like that. So, you know, a question is I'll, I'll have um, somebody who's uh, coming to apply for a tumor position and they've just finished from, let's say, MD Anderson. They've done their fellowship. So we're writing papers. We're doing translational research. You know, what I want to make sure of is, you know, do you want to be in a lab? Do you want to be, you know, looking at immunotherapy? I mean, if that's really your focus, this isn't the right place for you. Mm -hmm. By the same token, I can have somebody who's been out five years. Um, they just want to be busy. They want to operate and they want to do everything. And they start telling me how they really love doing complex spine and how many T-lifts they've done. Well, I'm interviewing them for a tumor position. So that's telling me that that, that there's really not a fit. So... I think it's a really important thing on both sides, both for the person hiring, but also for um, the the applicant. So, uh, you know, people talk about this thing about red flags. So you're you're applying for a job, and are there any true red flags? Like you're 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 looking at the spot, and like red flag comes up, like okay, that's a bad spot, right? So there's red flags on both sides. So are you talking about a red flag for? Oh, tell us both sides. Yeah, yeah both so sides. So I would say red flags for. Um, for an applicant, for someone that's looking for a job, um, I think what tends to happen is people think geography first. I want to be in this part of the country. I want to be in a big city or, or even more specifically, I need to be in Chicago. I need to be in New York. I need to be in Philadelphia. I think they start making sacrifices. Um, so I think that's a big red flag when you're looking in the mirror. Um, you know, that's important, but this is a job that you're going to have for a, a long time. It's a tough job. You're going to wake up every morning doing this, so you, you've got to make sure you're having the right, uh, um, you know, again, it gets back to the, to, to the right fit. Uh, but big red flags for me are when people start off asking about salary, number one. Red flags are, um, you know, really focusing on things like CME credits and, you know, how many days off am I going to get and things like that. I, that, to me, is in the end. That's the contract stuff where when I start hearing that up front, those are red flags for me. Um, and for the applicant, I think hearing the same thing on the other end of, you know, really just focusing on salary and metrics and RVUs and, um, 
you know, uh, of red flags of a, a position that they're taking. Why are you hiring me? Um, am I replacing somebody? Is this a new position? And if you're replacing somebody, why did that person leave? How many people left before them? Those are the biggest red flags are for an applicant, I think, is looking at the history of a place that you're going to. I mean, how reliable is it to call the last guy that was in that spot? Because that was the advice we were always given, like, call the last guy that was here, and then, you know, sometimes it's like this, this spew of all the horrible things about the place, and other times it's like they won't tell you anything. Like, what, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think it's another great question. Um, you know, when you call, I think it's important, you absolutely have to do that, but I think you really have to take that with a grain of salt, because first of all, to, in today's environment, um, people are suing each other for saying bad things about other programs. Um, I, I have a colleague who uh, literally was threatened with a lawsuit because they, they told somebody not to hire somebody, and it was a supposedly a confidential um, uh, inquiry. Hmm. So, yeah, you have to be careful. And obviously, if somebody left on bad terms or they were, you know, whatever, they're not going to say anything positive. Yeah, I am glad you bring that up because we're going to be interviewing Steve Giannata, who was head of the Professional Conduct Committee forever and, and is not now. Uh, and seen everything in this whole thing about Dr. Death, which is what most people are hearing about us on the yep. podcast, which is, of course, not us. Um, so this this has really bugged me for a while. And I, I posed this question to him in a, because you're a friend, right? Mm -hmm. Like, So a resident matches into neurosurgery. They spend seven years working God, ungodly hours, being paid nothing, often, I don't want to say mistreated, but being treated not, you know, they're not princes, right? And they get through that and almost nobody leaves or gets fired, right? Almost nobody, Correct. right? Then 50% I hear of people within the first two years of their job when they're making 10 times as much as a resident leave. Like how does that make sense? So you, you're suffering seven years paying all these dues and then you go to a place where they're paying you a lot of money and then boom, I'm out. Like, what, what's going on there? What's happening with people? Well, I think it gets to everything we've just been saying. There's a huge paradigm shift. I think it's, it's a mismatch of... Um, where the person looking for a job and the person hiring are not connected. They're not asking the right questions. Um, and again, I'll take it back to looking in the mirror. What's important to me? What do I want? Um, you know, you have to make the right decision. When I first started, I, and God is my witness, I didn't know, I didn't really know what my salary was going to be. I was just told, hey, we want you to stay here. I wanted to stay where I was at, I did my fellowship. It was a very busy place. Um, I was getting an incredible experience. Money really wasn't, I mean, it's embarrassing now to say what I was making. I made it for a long time. That was never a motivating factor. Um, and I think, you, you know, we all know this is the hardest job in the world that you can have. And if you're motivated just by money, that's going to be a problem. Yeah, so I was going to ask you about that. Like, how important is a starting salary? Yeah, I, I think it's important without question. To me, it's more what is the... You know, what is the salary at five years? What are the metrics? What, what am I, um, you know, you just, no one wants to be in a situation where one guy's making a million dollars a year and another guy's making $300,000 a year and they're doing the same amount of work, right? That's, that's, nobody's going to be happy with that. But what I tell all the, uh, uh, the fellows, our chief residents, uh, um, uh, when we were, uh, when we had residency was, you know, don't start off with that, you know, prove yourself first. You're going to have much more leverage and, and, you know, be in a position of strength to basically sit down at the end of two years or even a year and say, well, I was supposed to do this many RVUs and guess what? I did 50% more or I was supposed to write this many papers, get this many grants, do this. I've done this. I've done this. That's a very different scenario. And I think it, it, it settles out on both sides where the employer and the neurosurgeon um, feel that they're now, they're going to be partners. 
So I've always told the residents and fellows that work under me that, yeah, if what you need to negotiate for, because that's what it comes down to, right? Like, is it, A, is it a negotiation? B, if you're in a position to negotiate, what do you negotiate for? I say negotiate for the tools of success. And I always use the example, and I hope I'm not misquoting. I know not everybody likes the Patriots, and I don't like them either. But <laughs> the whole thing with Tom Brady, how Tom Brady was given – was it like a $10 million bonus mm-hmm. by Kraft? And he said, no, 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 give it to my offensive line. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that turned into how many Super Bowl rings and the guy seems to have like two hours in the pocket, right? And and you wonder why that is. And you're like, wow, he was given the tools, which is to be on the field, to make the passes and score the touchdowns. And, and it turned out to be even better for him, right? And so what do you think, like, so money aside, right? So that's obvious. What are the tools a young surgeon needs to negotiate for for success? Yeah, and another great question, but I just want to say that's, a, that's an excellent example. Let's also talk about the quarterback, and this is another big warning that, that, that I give our fellows that are looking for jobs. If, how many quarterbacks have we seen that have gotten the $70 million guaranteed contracts and they fade out after one season? You don't want to be that person either where you're walking in and you're already, everyone's going to be automatically looking at you. You're almost destined to fail when the expectations are set so high. Mm, So, you know, the tools that you need are really um, uh, unique to whatever the job is that you're doing and the position that you're taking. But the basic tools are that, first of all, you're, you're joining a practice where there's a team mentality, that, that you are going to not be competing with your partners that you're not going to be a threat to anyone, that, that you're there to build the overall team and the overall program. Um, that's, that's the number one starting point. <laughs> I love that you bring that up because I remember this case, and of course we'll not identify who these people are, <laughs> but this guy was Come fresh on, Mike, out of, why not? Yeah, I know, right? I know. Fresh out of residency and fellowship, this guy had a lot of potential and negotiated at this institution for a salary that was like what? it's not $1, but $1 or $1,000 more than the spine director. It's all it takes. And it so angered those people that he wanted to just be – it was a, it was a pissing contest yep. – that his career was set back four years yep. by that one move. And it's like shocking. Like, really? And you got to do that? It gets down to what we're saying. It's not about – it's always about the money. But it's not about the money. It, it it's right. becomes into these – exactly, these, these pissing matches, this hierarchical – you know, if you're starting a, at a new group, I don't care if you've been out 20 years. If I'm going to join a new group, they don't give a crap who I am, what I did. I'm joining that new group. It's day one. You've got to prove yourself. Just like football, right? You're now part of the Redskins organization. That's exactly right. So, so again, going back to the tools, like what, I'll give you an example, what I say. I say, just like the Tom Brady analogy, what matters for a football player that wants to play football is time on the field. And you've got to negotiate for that. And for me, that's OR time. Mm-hmm. And so I negotiate for first start OR times so that you're not – I remember it's, there was a hospital in Los Angeles where the OR time for starting people is 12 midnight. <laughs> as your, that's, your, that's your block. Yep. And like come on. Like who – like what – okay, the reps hate you. The nurses know you don't matter. The patients are like scratching their heads like what? what? I got to show up at like 11 p.m. for my surgery. What's going on here, right? right. It's embarrassing. So like – so what do you recommend people negotiate for? So, uh, you know, I think it, it becomes the, the tools of your trade. And what are the tools of our trade are operating room time, um, clinic time, um, having – understanding what the market is that you're going into. You know, don't go into a market like New York City, Philadelphia, Chicago, downtown LA and think that, you know, oh gee, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to take over. You, you've got to position yourself in, where you can be successful. And that starts with, to your point, things in the hospital like OR time, 
Um, it, it, it means having enough clinic time with enough providers. It's a really big deal as well. You have to be efficient. If you are by yourself or you don't have the resources to be efficient, everyone's going to fail. So we're interviewing a number of nurse practitioners and PAs on this podcast because they are the fastest growing segment of nurse surgery. I know you run this giant course that I was with. Is it made 500 attendees or something like that? It's, yeah, it sells out every year. It's a great course. Yeah, so tell us how, impor- like how important it is to have – because you know how it is. It's always like, okay, well, we'll start you out with sharing a nurse practitioner, right? right. But then – like, should you negotiate for your own nurse practitioner PA? Or like, tell me, tell me about that rubric. You know, I, I think doing that, I mean, you have to understand what the culture of the practice. We have 16 advanced practitioners. No one has their own person. But the culture there is very much that each doctor is essentially the same. And, and the service lines, whether it's being in the office, being uh, uh, rounding in the ICU, that they're there and they're available to, to, to help take care uh, of whatever the practice is. But it really depends. If, if you're joining a practice and everyone has, or, or even a few people have their own individual uh, advanced practitioner, you absolutely need that. So tell, let's wrap up by you telling us about the GNI, because this is a very cool project from what I've heard. So, um, I mean, it, it's basically, it's not that novel. It's, it's pretty, um, it's pretty basic concept, which I think is what we need to get to in medicine overall, is getting back to the basics. You know, uh, my, the biggest threat that I see right now to, to healthcare are doctors finishing their training, whatever specialty, and getting an MBA. Um, I, I think that's a backwards way to do it. I think we need to get back to there's patient and there's doctor. That's the starting point. Now, what do we talk about now? We talk about systems, which are the hospitals. We don't call them hospitals anymore. We're talking about the providers, the payers, the networks, the narrow networks. Getting back to the basics, and what do we provide? We provide neuroscience care. Neurosurgery, I think we put ourselves in a little bit of a vacuum. Our colleagues in neurology, psychiatry, even ER medicine, um, that's what we did. We sat down at a table and we said, what are all the things and the components that we use to take care of our practice every day? And it's for us, a lot of it's the ER. Our patients show up with subarachnoid hemorrhage, acute stroke, spinal cord injury. ER providers are our lifeline in acute neurosurgery. So we said, let's make them part of us and let's be one. So we developed the country's first uh, uh, dedicated neurologic emergency room. Something on the opposite end of the spectrum, pharmacy. I mean, we use, the drugs have gotten so complex and the pharmacokinetics have gotten so complex. And also as physicians, we do a horrible job of, of managing that. I spend a lot of my time as a specialized neurosurgeon taking my patients off of, of medication. So having all these specialties together under one roof um, as one true entity and providing that service to a hospital. And the hospitals have to be all united where we're not competing with one hospital across the street from another, but everybody kind of benefits from this. And at the end, the patient benefits. Excellent. Well, I think, you know, speaking from the resident perspective, I'm currently in my first professional employment scenario of my life, and I got there through a match process. And then like everyone else, I'll get out in my mid-30s and suddenly have to find a job. So I think this conversation is a great resource both for myself and senior residents graduating around the country um, to inform that process, hopefully avoid some pitfalls and some red flags, and spark further conversations with their own institutions. So thank you. Great. Thanks, Thanks, guys.